Hi there. My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. The preached texts are included in the audio of this episode, but you can still find a link to them in the episode description. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading this morning comes from the third chapter of Acts, where Luke writes, When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, You Israelites, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Here ends the reading. Our second reading comes from the 24th chapter of Luke, where Luke again writes, While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost, Jesus said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, Jesus said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. So our theme, our thematic question for this Easter season is, what does it mean to be Christian? But unpacking that a little bit, we won't end up with a tidy little discreet list of bullet points, you know, of Christians do and believe these five things. Instead, I'm asking more like, 
It's probably consider how your faith impacts your values, your actions, your day-to-day, your view of the big picture. Put it yet another way, what does Christianity have to do with your identity? So what does it mean to be Christian? And I have to admit, this is one of those Sundays. We have two texts that present two very different topics, and I just can't quite help myself but try to address them both. So if this feels more like two mini-sermons rather than one big one, I'm just being upfront about it. Now you know why. In the Easter season in general, one of the reasons it feels even more distinctly Christian, prompting that question, than even our other church seasons, is that we replace the Old Testament reading, looking back before the days of Jesus, with a reading from Acts, shortly after Jesus, the early church there. And there's this old theory that Acts has a pattern of intertwining sermons and stories such that the sermons from Peter and Paul and so on give the theology of Acts, the gospel in a manner of speaking, while the stories more demonstrate their authority. I'm not in that school of thought. I'm more in the new school of thought where we assume Acts has more of a rhythm like the gospels, where the sermons are intimately tied to the stories around them and that they really ought to be read together and in light of each other. But that old school theory informed our lectionary. So here in our lectionary, we just pluck out one of the sermons. But at least Peter did allude to the story. He just commanded a paralyzed man, somebody paralyzed from birth, to get up and walk, and he did so. That makes it the first specific miracle recorded after Pentecost. In the context of Acts, therefore, the Holy Spirit has just descended on Peter and the others, and the following story makes it clear that they're picking up the mantle, that the Holy Spirit is empowering Peter and others to do miracles just like Jesus. And they'll be remarkably similar stories. Now, as the church expands, we all together take up that mantle as the body of Christ and try to heal and feed and so on. For today, particularly troubling is that this sermon plucked out here is troubling because it's one of those texts that's been used to justify hatred and even violence against Jewish people. Anti-Semitism can be found in a few places in Scripture, but frankly, it's almost always biased and plucked out verses like that. Uh, One trouble that I've mentioned many times is our translation takes the word Judean, as in the people who live in the Roman province of Judea, and translates it Jew. By our understanding of the religion, the Galilean disciples were also Jewish. So those geographic distinctions meant something, especially to John's audience. It's weird that we simplify the translation in such a way that we then wind up with texts that sound like they're condemning Jewish people rather than those particular people that lived in a particular place at a particular time, which is really what John and others meant. Now, that's not quite the same as today where we have Israelite. That is closer to our sense of what it means to be Jewish, because while it sounds like a geographic distinction too, it's really not. The kingdom of Israel had long since been gone. The United Kingdom under David had that name, right? But when they split, it was the northern kingdom that retained the name Israel. And hundreds of years before this, they had fallen to the Assyrians, and now they were recalling that area Samaria by Jesus' day. So Israelite is more like children of Israel, the children of the person or the place or the country. So Peter's addressing them by their shared identity. (laughs) That's right, it's an identity they shared. It's another bungled up translation here. It's enough to pull your hair out. When Peter calls them friends, it really should be siblings or brothers or brothers and sisters, that sort of thing. 
In other words, these are his people. He's still one of them. He's also talking to people who actually were there for Jesus's crucifixion and so on. He's also glossing over the role the Romans played in Jesus's crucifixion and also that Jesus told him he was going to Jerusalem intending to get himself crucified. It was on purpose. He purposely provoked the proverbial bear by doing stuff like turning tables in the temple. So it would be utterly irresponsible for us to pluck out these verses as some kind of argument against Jewish people. It just doesn't fit. Peter's including himself as he criticizes a very specific group of people. He's using a miraculous healing as a jumping off point to show, to talk about, that God can still bring life, healing, and wholeness where things look hopeless, where we've messed up tremendously. And we don't know if the man messed up, but Peter's going in that direction. That's what we should get from a sermon like this. God sent the Holy Spirit such that we, the body of Christ, would continue Jesus' ministry for the rest of this age. And even those who messed up so bad as to have had a hand in Christ's death are still invited. They still get to come. They can find forgiveness and join the movement. Which isn't to say anything like Jewish folks ought to now become Christian, not in our modern sense of either category because God's promises are forever. And the covenants between God and Israel, God's people, the Jewish people, still stand. God is always inviting God's people back again in many and varied forms. So, what does it mean to be Christian? What does a Christian do with that information? Well, honor God's people and God's covenant. Invite others to participate. That means cooperating with Jewish people, not being hostile to them. And note that Again, I know I've kind of said this. Peter is accusing a particular group of a particular injustice. We should not hear such indictments as though they were indictments of everyone who comes after them who might also consider themselves Israelite, Jewish, or so on. Okay, so that's one text. Did you catch the connection here between the two texts? There's actually a few, right? There's the historical connections, as in Jesus and Peter both bring up that Jesus is in the same tradition as Moses, Abraham, Isaac. Uh, And there's some stuff about the body. Peter connected the paralytic's faith to his newfound strength. Now, we know that being sinful and being sick, or the opposite, you know, having faith and being perfectly healthy, those aren't correlated. That doesn't really happen, even if the story itself doesn't suggest as much, because it's only when Peter comes, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and commands the man to get up that he does. Instead, the connection we have is that God puts value on our physical bodies, Contrary to this sense that we're just disembodied spirits or when we die, we zip off as ghosts or some such thing, the distinctly Christian proclamation is that the resurrection is bodily. It's in the creed. I believe, dot, 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 in the resurrection of the body. When Jesus appears several times, he gives indications that he's not ethereal. He's not some spirit. He does things they figured ghosts can't do. He eats. You can touch him. And his wounds remain. It's the same body he died in. Now, there's bigger questions we won't get into, like when we're raised, what will we look like? And what if any of our ailments will remain? And why? For today, let's just note that Jesus' wounds were a matter of his identity. 
and they supported what God had sent him there to do. And they didn't inhibit him in any way. It stands to reason that in our bodily resurrection, we'd be in some form that kind of fits that description, that we won't be inhibited, but if something particular to us aids us in what God would like from us, then it carries over. It's part of who we are. So what does it mean to be Christian? Again, contrary to what we often see in the media or how we talk about it casually, Christians proclaim a bodily resurrection that comes later down the line. We're all resurrected together. We don't zip off as ghosts or anything like that. But what do we do with that information? We honor the body. I mean, do what we can to care for ourselves and each other with our physical and mental health. At the same time, we must reject this idea that if someone's sick, it's because of a lack of faith. Such sentiments are abusive, and they lead people to believe that God is cruel and unforgiving, which utterly undermines the gospel. It is not something to tell somebody in crisis. So where does that leave us today? (laughs) Well, this is the trouble with just jamming too many sermons here together, because we did really just end up with that thing I didn't want, a list a quick list, uh, a list of correctives, like trying to use good theology and biblical interpretation to correct abusive and sloppy theology or interpretations. And we've also got a list of ways we might respond to those corrections. So I could just say, well, here you go. Try this this week. Go be supportive and cooperative with our Jewish neighbors. Don't judge someone based on their physical capabilities. Honor your body and look for the resurrection. Those are all good and helpful little lessons, but let me leave you with one last uh, lesson which connects them all. Be willing to be corrected and go to the authoritative sources to do so. We should be overjoyed to turn to scripture, tradition, theology, and find a place where we were wrong and where we can improve. Being wrong and knowing it and learning from it means we're growing, trying, repenting, listening. All those things that Jesus insisted we do. Let's not get complacent in our sloppy thinking. The handful of untruths that I've highlighted this morning, those alone have done unimaginable levels of damage to God's beloved people in this world. We have to allow ourselves to be corrected as individuals, as the church, as humanity. And we do that one way is to turn to these authoritative sources and learn from them. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, Whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.